So let's quickly recap and get back to our story, shall we? Adam and Eve are both in the garden now. And the only limit on their freedom is that they aren't to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it's at this point that we're introduced to another character, the serpent. Or as we call them at home, a nope. Now, this probably isn't the first time that Eve has met the serpent, as she seems completely unfazed that this danger noodle is talking to her. But today is different. Today, the serpent has an agenda and says to Eve, do I understand that God told you not to eat from any tree in the garden? To which Eve responds, well, not at all. We can eat from the trees in the garden. It's only the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, don't eat from it, or, you know, you'll die if you touch it. Which is a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's obvious that Eve has the gist of it. But the serpent says to her, you won't die. God knows that the moment from that tree, you'll be just like God, knowing everything ranging all the way from good to evil. Now, what makes this such a clever thing to say is that it's true. They won't die from eating the fruit. In fact, if they'd already discovered the tree of life and eaten its fruit, they'll never die at all. But like most liars, the serpent isn't telling the whole truth and carefully sidesteps the possibility that God might have other ways of dealing with rule breakers. But now Eve's in a quandary. Is the serpent telling the truth? Or is God? Does God really want what's best for them? Or does God want to keep that knowledge to themselves to ensure that Adam and Eve don't become too much like God and become God's equals? So who to trust? Well, we all know how the story goes. How the longer Eve looks at the tree, the more beautiful it seems, and the better looking its fruit, until giving into temptation, Eve reaches up and takes a bite. Now, I'd like to point out something that usually gets glossed over, as a lot of people like to dump all over Eve for what happens next. But I'd like to remind you that Adam has been standing there next to her the whole time and that he's heard every word of Eve and the serpent's conversation. So when Adam takes a bite of that fruit, don't kid yourselves. He knows exactly what he's doing. But now the deed is done. And the first thing they notice is that they're buck naked. Not even a fig leaf between the two of them. So they rush to cover up. But why? A second ago, they didn't care. Well, now they knew the difference between good and evil. And for the first time ever, Adam and Eve looked at each other and realized that they were two completely separate people. That they were different from each other. That they were vulnerable. And that they'd done something wrong. And so deeply ashamed, they did what little they could to protect themselves from this newfound sense of isolation and vulnerability. But no sooner had they strategically placed some foliage, God comes strolling through the garden. So, like a kid caught with their hands in the cookie jar, Adam and Eve decide that the best course of action is to run and hide. Guess how well that works out for them. Yeah, like any good parent, God is immediately tipped off that something's wrong because they can't find their kids and it is way too quiet. So 
God calls out to them, where are you? Well, the man knows the gig is up. But he tries to bluff his way out of it by saying, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid. But, like a lot of kids who are trying to weasel themselves out of trouble, Adam says too much, prompting God to ask him, Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from that tree I told you not to eat from? So, busted. So in a last-ditch effort to deflect blame, Adam uses, quite literally, the oldest trick in the book. He tries blaming everyone but himself and throws Eve under the bus by saying, the woman you gave me as a companion, she gave me fruit from the tree, and yeah, I ate it. Now, did you catch that? Not only does Adam act all innocent and try and shift the blame to Eve, he, uh, he kind of implicates that this is God's fault too because it was God's bright idea to give him this woman. So, you know, it's not really my fault that this thing happened, which uh, not exactly a classy move. So, having had enough of Adam, God asks Eve, what have you done? And Eve, very quick to follow Adam's lead, tries to shift the blame again by accusing the serpent of having tricked her into doing it. And as a parent, that appears to have been God's tipping point because the next thing you know, God is cursing everything. The serpent is cursed to crawl on its belly and eat dust. Eve and her daughters are cursed to endure great pain when giving birth. Adam and all his children are cursed to work hard every day just to eat and to eventually return to the earth from which they came. Or in other words, they're going to die just like God said they would. Now, this is the part where we're usually told that if Adam and Eve had just done what God asked them to, then everything would have worked out just fine. But because they didn't trust God, They'd irreparably damage their relationship with God, with creation, and each other, messing things up for all of us for all time. Go team. But even in the midst of catastrophe, there's still a bit of hope here. In spite of everything, God loved us so much that God didn't give up on us and has been doing their best to comfort and care for us ever since, which is all well and good, I suppose, but personally, I don't buy it. If God knew what would happen if we ever ate from that tree, why did God put it there in the first place? Why go out of their way to tell Adam that they could eat from any tree in the garden except for that great big one in the middle and honestly expect us, curious creatures that we are, not to do it? That's like putting an open can of tuna on the kitchen counter and sternly telling your cat, don't eat it, only to explode at the poor kitten when you come back and find an empty can of tuna. It's just not fair. So why would a loving God put such an obvious temptation in our path only to punish not just the perpetrators, but our entire species for all eternity? That sounds more like a setup to me, unless... Unless God really did want us to eat from that tree and we weren't really punished at all. Think about it. When humanity makes its first appearance in the Bible, God says, we will make them in our image. 
So I think it's safe to say that we're meant to be strikingly similar to God in spirit, if not in substance. And two of God's most defining traits are that God is free to choose and that God owns God's choices. And that capacity to choose is what allows God to be loving, just, compassionate, and forgiving, all of which are traits God wants to see in us. But in order to do that, we have to know the difference between good and evil. Or, to put it a little more scientifically, we have to be self-aware. Let's go back to my cat on the countertop example for a second. The cat, despite having been warned not to, eats the tuna. Has the cat done something wrong? No, it can't. Because a cat isn't self-aware the way we are. It has instincts, feelings, loads of personality, but no real sense of self. Which is probably why cats are so relaxed all the time, because with no sense of self, you can't look ahead the way we do. So cats don't worry about danger or where their next meal is coming from. They don't care what others think of them or agonize about death. When danger threatens, they act. When they're hungry, they eat. And while they may feel affection or fear, it's only ever in the moment. Because a cat has no sense of self. A cat just is. And with no sense of self, it has no sense of other. So everything they encounter is just an object to them. They have no capacity to empathize or identify with it. And without that capacity, how can anything they do be loving, just, or compassionate? It can't. Because they lack the relational concepts necessary to make moral choices or take responsibility for them. So nothing a cat does is good or evil. They simply lack the capacity. Us, on the other hand, we do have a sense of self and other. We absolutely empathize and identify with each other, with people both real and imagined, as we intuitively grasp just how similar we are. Which means that, yes, while we do have similar drives, instincts, and feelings to a cat, they're also informed by empathy the benefit from our foresight, and they are subordinate to our will. And that means we don't just react, we plan and we choose. And because we can anticipate the outcomes of our choices, all our decisions go from being purely instinctive to being moral. A choice between good and evil. Which means if someone tells us not to eat the tuna on the counter, and we do, Unlike the cat, we've done something wrong. And morally speaking, we're on the hook for the choice we've made. What's more, now that we're self-aware, that we've grasped the concept of other and entered into the realm of moral decision-making, we can't go back. Ever. It's a one-way trip that changes the way we look at the world forever. So now, like Eve, when a person becomes pregnant, we can anticipate the pain of childbirth, thus amplifying it, and yet still crave to physically forge a deep emotional connection with our partner. 
And now, like Adam, we can anticipate the changing of the seasons and just how much work it's going to take to make it through the winter. And like the two of them, we notice stuff like that we're naked. We notice that we're vulnerable. We notice that all of a sudden certain choices fill us with guilt and shame and realize that someday, someday we're going to die. And don't that sound awfully similar to all those curses God supposedly struck us down with for having tasted the forbidden fruit? But maybe now we can see that they weren't curses because this isn't a story about original sin. It's a story about the dawning of human consciousness, about the moment we ceased to be creatures of instinct and became creatures of conscience. Because like Adam and Eve, we can no longer innocently dwell in the garden of contentment. Like Brian Arthur Brown says in his book, Noah's Other Son, we'd irrevocably entered into the realm of choice and responsibility. Which again, if you think about it, is what we hope for our children that eventually they're going to leave behind their childish ways and embrace a life of moral decision-making. So is it really that big a stretch to imagine that that may have been what God intended? That it was always God's plan that someday Adam and Eve would take the bait and make the leap that would make them fully human. And if that's the case, as Rabbi Harold Kushner suggests, it was probably one of the bravest most liberating moments in human history and continues to be in the personal development of every human being. And yes, some of the consequences of that are painful in the same way that growing up and leaving one's home can be painful, in the same way that marriage and parenthood can be painful and cause us to wonder, why did I give up my less complicated life for all of these problems? But for the mature person, who has experienced the complex, hard-earned satisfaction of seeing these things through, there is no doubt that it's worth the pain. And so I contend that this story isn't about sin at all, but a story of heroism, a story of how humanity bravely entered into the new world of moral demands and decision-making that God had prepared for us. A world in which real relationships were finally possible and the only world in which love can truly exist. Because, well, yes, we can and have made decisions that have broken our relationship with God and one another. But without the knowledge of good and evil, without the self-awareness that defines us as human beings, we'd have never been able to forge a relationship with God or each other in the first place. And it was always God's intent that we'd live in relationship. But like the first words of Genesis suggest, the story of Mr. Man and Mrs. Mom is far from over. This is only the beginning. For just as with God was there to comfort and care for us when we took our first tentative steps into the new world of moral demands and decision-making, God is still with us. And though we'll never be able to go back to the garden of contentment or eat from the tree of life, God's got a plan for that too. Because if we can't eat the fruit of immortality in our innocence, then that just means God is going to have to find a way to bring it to us when we're mature enough to handle it. 
something God's already done for those with eyes to see. Now, can you say amen to that? Now, I'd like to invite you all to